1 Peter 1, 3-9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So good morning, you guys. Uh, if you do have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to First Peter chapter 1. As we just read, that's where we'll be today. Uh, and if you're new here, we want to say welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're with us. We're spending the, the month here, uh, January, to sort of unpack some of our foundational beliefs as a church family. We normally would go through like books of the Bible, but through January, the first weeks of the year, we want to uh, kind of revisit and unpack some of our most foundational beliefs. So uh, a couple weeks ago, we, we talked about prayer, how we want to always be a church that believes in the power of prayer. Uh, last week, we talked about how the Christian life is a changed life. Uh, we also want to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to change our lives. Uh, and this Sunday, I was originally going to talk about the Bible this morning, like why we believe it, why we trust it, why we preach it here every week. Uh, but as I was praying earlier this week, um, kind of reflecting on some conversations that I've had with some of you guys, and uh, uh, honestly, just reading the headlines, uh, I just felt compelled in my spirit to take a look at uh, evil and suffering. How do we make sense of evil and suffering in our world as Christians? So I'm sure you woke up this morning to go to church and you thought to yourself, man, like I'd really love to talk about evil, sin, and suffering today. Um, just kind of sounds like sort of a downer topic, right? But hey, we can think of evil and suffering sort of this way. I know it's sort of a downer topic, but I want us to, to look at it with sort of this perspective. Like, uh, we have a friend who is having some health issues lately. You know, these health issues kind of started off small, and they got worse. They didn't really know what was going on. Uh, he didn't know what was going on, and so he went in for a few checkups, and eventually they actually found a tumor that was apparently causing a lot of these issues, which on the one hand is awful right? Like on the one hand, that's a total bummer. Like you don't want to find out that you have a tumor. But on the other hand, like there's good news that comes with that because you, you know what's wrong. You, you know what is wrong. Now that it's diagnosed, you can address it. You can deal with it accordingly. And that's what happened with, with this friend of ours. He's, he's now getting treated appropriately based on the news that he received. And so this morning, we're digging into evil and suffering, asking the honest questions like, what is wrong with this world? What the heck is going on? And so today, that's the first question we're going to look into this morning, like, what is wrong with the world? And the second is a related question, which is, how do we now respond? And when we look at that, and we can kind of diagnose what the issue is, then we can respond accordingly. We can deal with it appropriately. And so let's look at that first question. What is wrong with the world? 
What is wrong with the world? So I'm aware that some people, some people don't believe in objective evil. They don't believe that there's some sense of, some objective sense of wrong. Like, there's some people that think that um, this idea of evil, of wickedness, of wrongness is something that's, that's made up, this made up concept from religion to sort of control and manipulate the masses. But even the most relativistic, like atheists, would still have to reckon with this week's headlines. Just the headlines just this week. Like, New York Times had this headline about how there's a school shooting in Kentucky that was the nation's 11th shooting of the year. 11th shooting, school shooting of the year in Kentucky happened this week. It was January 23rd. January 23rd, we had the 11th school shooting of this year. This week, more than 150 women gave victim impact statements against Larry Nassar because of the sexual abuse that they'd uh, experienced at his hands. And other than these other, there's been other headlines throughout the weeks about abuse and hatred and racism and shootings and missing people in our community. Missing people in our community, a couple of them who were found dead, young people. And we're just like, what? Like, what is going on? Like, what is happening? Maybe you just think, generally speaking, about the tragedies of death and disease and poverty. Like, even the guy, even the guy that would say that there's no objective standard of truth, even the dude who would claim that there's no objective sense, that we can can say that this thing is, is wrong, that we can have a sense of wrong and right, the guy who has no universal moral rule to know what is right or wrong, even that guy would have to look at these headlines and say, that is wicked. That is vile. That is evil. That's not right. That's wrong. You see, the one thing that we can all agree on, no matter where you sort of land on the faith spectrum, is that something has gone horribly wrong with this world that we live in. So what went wrong? What is wrong with the world? Scripture begins by telling the story of how we came to be and where things went wrong. In Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, we read about how God intended the world to be. We see this this picture of the Creator's beautiful design. You see, when God made all creation, he called it good. When he spun the stars into existence, when he fashioned the tiniest cells that make up all creatures, when he formed mankind from the dust of the ground, in Genesis 1, verse 31, it says that he took a step back, he saw everything, and he called it very good. Very good. And so any time that you, that you just look at like a, a sunrise or a sunset, and you're like, man, this is, this is beautiful, that's to point us to the creative work of God. When you look at the vastness of the stars and just knowing that the galaxy that you see in the stars is just one of billions of galaxies that we, we, that we happen to know exist, there's probably even more. That's supposed to be a picture to us about the infiniteness of our Creator God. When we see the complexity of of life, plant life, creaturely life, or just the way that the human mind works, that should point us to the intelligence and the wisdom of our Creator God. 
You see, when God created everything, he called it good. He took a step back and he said, this is very good. And he put humanity's first parents in a garden and told them to enjoy the fruit, to till the ground, and to expand his, the blessings of his reign to the ends of the earth. To cultivate, to multiply, and to create culture. You see, that is the good life that we were created for. That's the way things were supposed to be. But then in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world through these two individuals, a shadow was cast over that good creation. And now all the earth and all its creatures and all mankind are stained by the effects of that. We're all stained by the effects of sin. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5 that through one man, which is through Adam, sin entered the world and stained it. Death entered the world through sin, and now it's spread to all people, and it's spread through creation. This is why Romans 8 says that our souls groan. Our souls groan along with the rest of creation for things to be restored. Because there's some innate sense in which we say this is not how things are supposed to be. Creation knows it. Our hearts know it. By the way, it's okay to groan. It's okay to groan. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to lament. There's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations where God's people are literally crying out throughout the book wondering why they're suffering the way that they are. They're wondering where God is. You see, some people think that you know, Christianity is naive, that you sort of, sort of turn off uh, any, any sense of reality. That uh, I forget who it was that said that uh, religion is, is the opiate of the masses. Who just, uh, you know, you, you, just, you just ignore the pain, you just ignore what's around you. That's not what we see in the scriptures. I mean, the book of Psalms. There's a reason that those of us who, who read and visit our Bible from time to time, that we turn to the Psalms frequently when, when we need a bit of encouragement. It's because the Psalms teach us that it's okay to ask questions. The Psalms teach us that it's okay to ask why. It's okay to ask God, where are you? It's okay to say, please make it stop. Why are things the way that they are? You see, the fallen nature of our world that we live in it's broken, and this is why we long for something better. This is why we long for something more. And we join the prophets and the songwriters of the Bible in that longing. You see, because sin broke what was good, what was perfect, what was beautiful. And that's what gives us this universal sort of gnawing in our guts that says, there's, there's, there's got to be more to this than, than what I see than what I'm experiencing. And so to set us up, that's sort of the big diagnosis for what's wrong with the world. The big, the big diagnosis is that is sin. That sin has affected, that sin has stained all things. That's the cancer. And so now, how do we deal with it? How do we remove it? If we believe in a good God, how do we make sense of this? And so that leads us to our next question. How do we respond? 
How do we respond? You see, look, one way that people try to make sense of and respond to the problem of evil and suffering in our world is to deny altogether that God exists. That's one way to respond to it. You just deny that God exists. You see, there's a, there's a classic argument against Christianity that, that goes like this. It says, if God allows evil and suffering to exist because he can't stop it, then, then he's just not all-powerful. But on the other hand, if God allows evil and suffering to exist because he could stop it, but he chooses not to, then, then he's not good. Either way, the good and powerful God of the Bible cannot exist. Two problems with this line of thinking. On the one hand, you're playing judge and putting God on the bench to explain things that you're too small to understand. But on the other hand, if you abandon belief in a God, if you abandon belief in God, then there's no higher law. There's no divine law. Then how can you call anything wrong? How can you call anything unjust? How can you point a finger to God or to any deity and say, this isn't right? Where did you get your sense of right? How can you say things are not what they ought to be in any meaningful way? C.S. Lewis, the famous author and thinker and professor, he was an atheist who wrestled with this before he was eventually converted to, to Christianity. And in his, in his book, Mere Christianity, he looks back to the, to the moment that he was wrestling with this, and, and this is what he writes. He says, he admits, he says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. If the whole universe has no meaning, then we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, then we should never know that it was dark because dark would be without meaning. How do you guys know the name Rachel Denhollander? Rachel Denhollander was the first woman to publicly accuse Larry Nasser of the atrocities that he's been in the news of in the last several weeks. She's a hero in the true sense of that word. He'd been abusing countless women from the time they were little girls to, 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 to young women for years. They found hundreds. Over 150 of them gave their victim impact statements this week. It was like on all the headlines this week. But more than that, hundreds had been affected over they don't even know how long. And there had been this, this, this culture created that wasn't safe for her or for any other victim to come forward. And so when she came forward, she knew that there was going to be people that would shame her for it, people that wouldn't believe her, people in her own church that thought she was just you know, looking, for, uh, looking for attention, looking for money. And in her victim impact statement that she gave, you guys should watch it if you haven't already, it's like 26 minutes long. Um, I watched it this week, and, and in it, there's one point where she says that the one thing that drove her to, to go to war against this evil, to stand for what was true, was her faith in a good and powerful God. 
a God who would not let evil go unpunished. And in her victim impact statement, she said to, directly to him and to the judge and to, to all in attendance, she said, I know that this is wrong and evil because I know what is good and right. And she shared her faith in front of all these people. She actually quotes this line from C.S. Lewis, saying a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. That's what drove her to respond. That's what drove her to respond into the evil and suffering that she was subjected to in this way and to stand for what is right, which leads us to the other way that we can respond, which is the other way that we can respond to the problem of evil and suffering is through hope, through faith and hope in Jesus Christ. You see, if sin is the diagnosis, then Jesus is the cure. If sin is what leaves us hopeless, then Jesus is who provides us hope. That's what she shared about in her victim impact statement. You see, in 1 Peter, Peter is actually writing to people who are suffering. They're getting hammered for their faith. And they were surprised to be suffering. They were surprised by suffering because they'd suffered for so many years, for so many decades. And then Jesus comes. He's revealed himself as the risen Messiah. They have faith in him. They're gathering as God's people. And yet suffering in this world and evil still continues, and they're shocked by it. And so Peter writes this letter. He writes 1 Peter, the letter we know as 1 Peter, to encourage them. And toward the beginning of his letter in verses 3 through 9, which Michaela read this morning, he really gives a plot summary to help them take their eyes off their present circumstances, to help them see through that and give them a greater perspective about how God is at work in the midst of the evil and suffering that they're subjected to. Now, if you want to understand what a plot summary is, you need to understand that the Word of God is a narrative. It's a story, all right? So the Bible is a story. It's a narrative. It's not an encyclopedia that's arranged by topic. It's primarily a narrative roughly organized from the beginning of a story to its end. And so those of you that were like English nerds know that when you have a long story like the Bible, a good storyteller will insert at times what's called a plot summary. They'll insert a plot summary at different points because it's, it's easy to lose sight of what's going on. Right? And so you have these plot summaries that kind of summarize the whole, the whole point of the story to kind of get you back on track. And the Bible's peppered with these. The Bible's peppered with all kinds of plot summaries. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9 is one of these places. And it shows us that Jesus provides, in the midst of facing evil and suffering, he provides a threefold hope for his followers. A threefold hope. A hope that looks back a hope that looks forward, and a hope that presses in. And so that's what I want us to look at for the next few minutes. First, let's look at the hope that looks back. Read verse 3 with me. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So these verses right here, or this verse right here, is Peter's summary of everything that God has done from the time that humanity fell and sin entered the world to the time of the resurrection of Jesus. Peter is summarizing everything that God, God has done from the fall up to the resurrection for the lives of these believers. 
And what did God do? It says that He caused us to be born again. He caused us to be born again. Peter's saying this is something that has already happened through the resurrection. He's caused us to be born again. You see, God did the one thing that we could not do, that we could not achieve or earn or ever deserve. Sin brought death into the world. Death that we all deserve by nature and by choice. Sin brought death, but Jesus brings new life. And so we need to be born again because apart from Jesus, we are spiritually dead. We're not just morally impure. We're not just lost. We're not just ignorant. We're spiritually dead and unable to respond to the truth and hope of God's Word. But it's in that hopelessness, it's in that blindness and darkness that God sends His Son to die to suffer himself, and to experience the weight of evil on the cross for our sins. So when you and I are contemplating the problem of evil and suffering in our world, the one thing that we cannot say is that God doesn't care. The one thing we cannot say is that God didn't do anything. The thing that we cannot say is that God doesn't understand, that He doesn't love us, that He's indifferent. The Holy Son of God plunged Himself into the fiery furnace of our sin, of the world's suffering, and the world's evil. He loved us so much that He was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath, the cup of death, and to feel its sting. Peter says that the reason Jesus did this was according to his great mercy. It was according to his great mercy. Now, I talk to um, a lot of friends that are are, are skeptics or have questions about Christianity, and and from time to time, you know, like one one thing that I hear again and again is, um, you know, if if God is good, if God exists, then then why does all this happen? Why does evil happen? Where is he? It's a great question. But also the point of Christianity is that he did do something. That's why Jesus came. That's kind of the whole point of the gospel, is that he wasn't indifferent, that he isn't a God who doesn't care. He's not a God who's unacquainted with grief. He took it on himself. He knows what it means to be weak. He knows what it means to suffer. And he did it according to his great mercy, not because we're awesome or special or noble or strong. Living hope is not given because of anything in us, but because of something in him, because of his great mercy. And so if you want to deal with evil and suffering, then the first thing you have to do as a Christian is to look back with the hope of the new birth. Then you look forward. That's our second point. A hope that looks forward. Read the end of verse 3 again with me. It says that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now look, Peter's talking about a living hope 
that is an inheritance. So think of this as like a spiritual investment that Jesus secures. It is a spiritual investment that cannot be touched and will never decrease in value. The book of Revelation tells us that one day the new heavens and the new earth will come down. And this world, our bodies, the good life that we were intended to live in the garden will all be restored, will be renewed, and will be beautified. And so now, no matter what it is that you're dealing with, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what you're wrestling with today, if you're a Christian this morning, then you're moving toward an eternal glory that Peter says is imperishable. It can't grow old. It's undefiled. No one can mark it or vandalize it. It's unfading. It lasts. And it gets better and better every single day. Imagine that I had a quarter with me up here. Right? I actually meant to pick up a quarter, but I forgot. So just imagine that I have a quarter in my hand right here, right? You guys have a rough sense of the size of a quarter, right? Now imagine that I had a quarter and then I had painted it black, all right? Imagine that I painted it black and I just put it right here at my feet in front of the stage. Then imagine I started collecting the rest of your guys' quarters and we started lining them up here and all your, all your quarters are unmarked, right? I'm the only weird one painting quarters, right? So I've got one black quarter and then all these clean quarters lined up after that. Now imagine that I went out to the lacrosse field this morning to the people there, and as we know, there's a lot of people out there. You pass their cars on the way in. And imagine that we collected all their coins and all their quarters and then lined them up here too, right? Now the Bible says that, that our, our time on earth is, is, is dim, that it's small, that it's temporary. Our life is like that black quarter. And if we had this whole entire front of the stage filled with clean quarters, that'd be like a picture of eternity. A small picture. Imagine that we filled the stage and the rest of this room and the entire campus and then all of Rancho Santa Margarita, and then Orange County, and then California, and then all across the continental United States, moved around down to South America, filled the whole entire thing with these newly minted clean quarters. Imagine that we lined the bottom of the sea and went to the, to the ends of the earth, just filling it all with a layer, just a single layer of quarters. Not even half an inch high, not even a quarter of an inch high, just a single layer. You'd be like... That's still a lot of quarters. But imagine we stacked the quarters up like 10 feet deep, right? And there was still just one quarter that was painted black. Just one single quarter that was painted black. That's the time that we have on this earth. That's the time that we're subjected to evil and suffering and futility. That's the time that creation groans. That single black quarter. And all those quarters around the rest of the planet, 10 feet deep, are even still just a drop in the bucket of what it means to see glory in eternity. C.S. Lewis, again, provides a great picture for us. In the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, some of the main characters had just, had just died and they didn't, they didn't know this, right? And they're, they're talking to Aslan, and, and he's kind of breaking them the news that, that them and their, their parents had just passed away in an accident. 
And the narrator of the story is talking about this, this shock that they have. And then he says, for us, this is the end of all the stories. This is the end. Death is the end to all the stories that C.S. Lewis has been writing about. And then he says, we can most truly say that they all lived from this point happily ever after. See, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventure in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. This is the inheritance, the unfading glory that is imperishable, undefied, and unfading. You see, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then all that is sad will come undone. Life has triumphed over death. Mercy and grace has triumphed over sin. And goodness and beauty and truth will rise from the ashes of evil and suffering. So Peter says, we look back at what Jesus has done. We look ahead to our living hope and inheritance. And lastly, a third point under this question. We have a hope that presses into the present. Hope that presses in. Read verse 6 and 7 with me. Peter says, in this, in this good news, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here Peter describes where this hope that we have as Christians gets its teeth in the here and now. Here he explains where our hope gains traction. He uses the words grief and trial and tests, which honestly are not super exciting words, right? No one wants to sign up for more grief and trials and tests. But what is it about these words that he's getting at? Read it again with me, verse 6 and 7. He says, In this hope you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, when Peter uses the phrase, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, what he's getting at there, what he's talking about with that phrase is really the process that metal goes through when it's, when it's tempered. You see, when a goldsmith first works with metal, it's in like an ore state. That's what we call it. It's an it's a, it's a ore state. And ore isn't usable because it has imperfections. It has no strength. It has no beauty. has no luster. Some of the ladies in this room are wearing jewelry made of gold or silver. 
some refined metal that has been tempered, right? You're not going to see ore hanging around someone's neck. And that's because the metal needs to be refined. It needs to be purified. It needs to be made beautiful. And so what a goldsmith will do is he or she will add white hot heat to transform that metal ore so that its nature can be changed, can be purified, can be made to look more beautiful. And look, when you come to new faith in Jesus, when you come to new life in Jesus, you're you're like a piece of ore. There are times where you'll struggle in your faith because of suffering that you're enduring or because of evil in the world that you're wrestling with in prayer. But the Holy Spirit of God is using that to apply the white hot boiling heat in those moments to take your heart to places that you never intended to go so that he could produce in you what you cannot achieve on your own. You see, our God is a redeemer. He's a full redeemer. He's a zealous redeemer, and he's committed to his work of renewal in our lives and in the world. He will purify and strengthen you as you reckon with these questions. See, we don't have to question whether God is attentive or whether he's good or whether he's faithful. Like, he he, he is. And the moments where we do wrestle with him in prayer, where we feel the grief of loss, of weakness, of pain and suffering and of lament, those are the moments that the Lord is using to refine us to grow our faith, to sanctify us, to make us look more like the character of Jesus. God is shaping us into the kind of people that he's going to be spending eternity with, growing us to trust in his sovereign mission in the world, that he is and will make all things new. When was the last time that you brought God under the court of your judgment? where you asked him these hard questions. And again, it's okay to ask those hard questions. But what I hope this text shows us is that it's important for us to press through those questions and see that God wants us to talk to him, to cry out to him in prayer as a child cries out to her father. He wants us to get caught up in the only glory that will truly satisfy our hearts, the glory of the risen Jesus Christ. Read verse 8 and 9 with me, and then we'll close. It says, Though you have seen him, though you have seen Jesus Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, your perseverance in faith and in hope results in the secure promise of the salvation of your soul. This is what the soul craves and longs for. And so if you've faced trials, if you've faced grief, don't deny the pain, but press into it, groan with it, along with the rest of creation. But then ask, what is the good news that I should be preaching to myself in this morning? In this moment. You see, if you learn 
if you learn to taste the goodness of the gospel, if you learn to taste the goodness of the good news, then you'll rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible. And that this isn't a fake or a forced emotion. That's not what joy is. Joy is not an emotion. It's a, it's a joy that endures in the middle of pain and suffering, full of glory and truth, securing a hope for our future because of what Jesus has finished for us in the past. And whatever grief, whatever longing you have will be taken up into God's grand redemptive story and fashioned into the purest gold. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.